I think I said something like this in my first talk a number of days ago, but this is a pretty unusual thing you've decided to do for this month or two, isn't it? To sit in silence, to sit and walk in silence, to be with a community of people and not talk to anyone. It's a little strange, you've got to admit. And I'm sure there have been some friends, perhaps family members, when you told them you were going to go on a retreat, and especially it was this long, some of them probably said, oh, how lovely. And they imagined we'd be there at the gate with your terry cloth robe and your slippers, (laughs) and the schedule was something like, you know, yoga and then massage and then spa. They have this idea of retreat, you know. It's not like that, I'm afraid, is it? Uh, but there's something that draws us to this, some, some uh, yearning, some inner knowing, some sense of the truth that we can find here that, it can, that can only be found in this kind of environment. And one of the things that I think is really precious about this kind of retreat time is actually being out in nature without an agenda, and especially at night. We're so rarely out at night apart from going to and from our cars, often in brightly lit places. But to be out in nature at night, hear the frogs croaking. Just as I was coming up to the meditation hall, a large owl flew overhead. And I always think that's a bit of a blessing. I couldn't tell whether it was a barn owl or a great horned owl. I think it was a barn owl. But it always makes me happy that such large predators are still here and hopefully flourishing. And then as I was walking towards the hall, I had my umbrella and I thought, it's not raining. And I took it away. Yes, it is. It's raining. It's kind of drizzling. But I looked up and there were stars. I said, how can there be stars? But it's raining. And then I realized, oh, it's a star shower. You know, like a sun shower. But I don't think I'd ever quite had a star shower before. The rain, I don't know where the rain was coming from, it was raining. But when I looked up, the sky was full of stars. And it was just that kind of clarity of presence or the time to notice that, that, that really touched me and just, again, spoke to this, um, the gift, the blessings that we have, the joy that we can find on a retreat like this, even as difficult as retreats can be. And a part of what's challenging for us, of course, is the renunciation that happens on retreat. We do give up a lot. As comfortable as it is here, relatively speaking, especially compared to, you know, practice in Asia or whatever, we still give up a lot to be here. And a big thing we give up is the communication, this incessant communication you know, perhaps not everyone here, but certainly for a lot of people, it's endless, right? We've talked about, you know, this phone that now carries more information than all the books that were written for the first 500 years that were written down. You know, it's amazing what we have. And so many people, so many of us are used to just being glued to that device um, in every spare moment. It's like if nothing's happening, you know, check the phone. What, what, you know, do I need to do something? Am I getting any information? We had a group of young teachers around to our house the other night just to connect with them, part of the cohort that Kate is training with. And one of them, they're all relative, you know, in their 30s or so, relatively young. Um, And one of them who's uh, 
in a teaching in a university setting, teaching in a, he was also teaching a mindfulness class, and he was sending out the homework and the information by email and was wondering why no one was responding and it didn't seem to be very active. And then when he finally met with the class, they said, email? Oh, that's so, you know, last century. We only do, you know, text messages now. And he realized, oh, if I want them to know what I'm doing, I have to instant, it has to be now instant. You know, email used to take like 30 seconds or a minute. Now, you know, it's got to be instant. And there's actually data being generated now that all of this... um, focus on these devices is having an impact on our bodies. I mean, we kind of know that, right? But I've read things recently like smartphone neck. You know, you have the double chin. And there's now a whole, of course, there's the problem now. There's a whole industry to deal with that. It's like, oh, here's a special treatment for your smartphone neck. But even worse, these, I don't know, these are the names I read about, text neck, you know, people are actually having a lot of problems with their neck and shoulders because they're always looking down. So here, we save you from that, (laughs) really. So just that posture that we always keep reminding you of, chest is open, shoulders are dropped, This this is our antidote. We should start, we could start marketing it as the antidote for this. I just read, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, Eight to 18-year-olds spend an average of seven and a half hours a day using entertainment media every day. So it's just this, this um, addiction, really, you could call it. And here, we break that. We really choose a different way of relating to be with our experience without distraction, to have this immediacy. So it sounds great, right? Yeah, but... <laughs> Then what are we with? As I said last time, it's our minds that we're actually spending all that time with because no one, you know, not talking to anyone else is just the constant chatter in the mind. And that can be certainly humbling, but even a little scary at times. Uh, Annie Lamott, the great funny writer, she actually used to live quite locally. I think now she lives in Mill Valley. Maybe she's Fairfax. She says something like, my mind is a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. And that's why we do this as a group. You know, it's like we're all all okay in this together. Um, So this is a real part of this process, is letting go of the distraction, being here in this essential, immediate kind of way. And we learn how to do that. You've all been on retreat before. You wouldn't get into this retreat unless you had. But for many of you, it's your first long retreat. We learn how to do this. It is a practice that we can actually get better at. It's like, oh, right, you know, the first week. Okay, that's what it's like. It's a little rocky. You know, I have the, the first days of settling in, and you sort of think that's over. But then, you know, the multiple hindrance attacks really start, or the sort of the purification gets going. And it can be, can be a little rough at times, you know, for all of us in different ways, whether it's very personal and immediate or stuff from the long-distance past. But something keeps us showing up, this longing for truth, for understanding, for opening our hearts and minds. And we kind of know it's only by being willing to be present for all of that 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 transformation, that journey is truly possible. But we have to deal with our minds, right? This is so central to this practice. 
I did a self-retreat at home not so long ago. Uh, I think it was about a month. And the conditions were good. You know, my home is comfortable and uh, is peaceful. I had to really, you know, there's still the possibility of internet, phone, whatever, but really put that aside pretty much for that time. But my mind just did not settle down. You know, and I'd sit there and it was peaceful. I didn't have anything to do, no responsibilities. And the mind would just churn. It was, it was just sort of humbling to see that tendency of the busyness of the mind. And so I tried all the things that we've probably told you if you come in and report that. Oh, why don't you try, you know, being with a breath or counting or noting or, you know, all of these different techniques, doing something more active in your practice. After a while, I just came up with this practice that really helped me in this kind of settling in period. Um, at the beginning of a sitting or the, the, these early days of a retreat where I was still trying to get a little more settled. And what I did was just use two notes, here and now. And um, on the in-breath, I would just say here. And just have this sense of all of this scatteredness of mind and the way out, you know, we can feel our energy going out to all of its concerns and issues and to-do list. Just kind of gathering that in in this way, on the in-breath, and on the out-breath now, and on the out-breath, opening up to the immediacy of presence, all of the six sense doors, what's happening. And I just found that that really got me kind of grounded and then able to continue the practice after that. So I just use it, um, you know, as I said, often at the beginning of a sitting or um, for some period of time, and it really helped remind me of what's important here and now. You know, as we say, that's the only place anything actually is really happening, but we're deluded so lot with um, all of our thoughts of past and future. So just offer that if that's helpful for you. And also, as I said last time, you know, mindfulness becoming... I think it, it's no, it's not mainstream yet, but it's getting there, right? You know, front cover of parade and time and all these things. And it used to be, if you remember, Zen and everything. You know, Zen and archery and Zen and what was it, motorbike maintenance and you know, flower arranger or whatever. And now, of course, it's mindfulness and everything. Mindfulness and therapy and in prisons and schools and the healthcare system. Um, in, in the workplace, Google has a whole program, I'm so some of you know it, called Search Inside. Search Inside. And they, they, they really, they train. They're, they've got an active program for training their workers in mindfulness meditation. And you know, there's, you could think things about that perhaps, but it, I think it ultimately has the... the what happens is it makes them happier people. Sure, it makes them possibly, I think, more effective in their work, but it's actually beneficial for them. But we have discussions here at Spirit Rock and in our other centers. What does this mean for this, this um, uh, really active interest in mindfulness that's decoupled from the Buddha's teachings? Um, decoupled from the, the, the wisdom teachings and the teachings on ethical conduct and, and right understanding. Um, and it's, it's an ongoing question, one that I'm really interested in. Uh, but it is the, the uh, doorway now for many people. 
And, you know, if only some portion of those come to actual Dhamma practice, I think it's a a great and powerful thing. And even in the the Buddhist world, if you read any academic articles, there's always discussions about, you know, what's essential to the Buddha's teachings? What can't you leave out? What's unique to the Buddha's teaching? What did he invent? And people will talk about things like the Four Noble Truths or Dependent Origination or his particular formulation of the teaching on karma. I think what what is central and what was unique to the Buddha's teaching is his teaching on mindfulness. That his um, discourse in the Satipatthana Sutra, I think Brian has referenced it, where he goes through this practice as we teach it here, of turning the attention to all these different aspects of our experience with a view to understanding was really radical. In the Buddha's time, it was, uh, he lived in a Brahmanical society, it was a, the, just the beginnings of the caste system that now is very developed in India, but then there were just four castes, and the Brahmins were the priestly caste, and they were kind of the top of the heap, really, and in control of all of the spiritual practices and rites and rituals. Um, and there was so a lot of emphasis on rituals and sacrifices and purification. There was a strong ascetic uh, stream of practice and a strong stream of concentration. But the Buddha was the one that said, no, instead of, you know, all of those different things, um, turn the attention to look at this mind and body and see in that that the whole world is manifest and that from this mind and body we can actually come to ultimate freedom and really understand uh, the nature of life and the world. So his, the central to his practice was mindfulness. And I think I sort of asked this last time. I often ask the question, what is mindfulness? It should be easy. We talk about you're here on a mindfulness retreat for one or two months. You've done a lot of mindfulness practice. But it's not a simple thing to answer. We have many teacher discussions about it, often disagree about what it is. Um, Different traditions, Buddhist traditions certainly disagree. Um, So I'd like to look into this question. I started this conversation in my first talk, but go into it a little more about what mindfulness actually is. I I talked last time about how it's not just this kind of awareness that, say, a dog might have, where there's a lot of attention to what's happening, but not the wisdom or understanding, and this is actually key. The word in in Pali is sati, and it has a root in um, the word... in or a a translation of memory, something about remembering. Um, And it could be seen to be just remembering to be mindful, but I think it has layers uh, of meaning associated with that, remembering what's important, remembering to be present. Um, There's a lot I could say about that, but the essence is of sati, of mindfulness, is being in the moment, and I think we'd all agree on that. As I said, this inner knowing and an outer connectedness, knowing what's happening, but this little bit of reflection that you know, you know what's happening. And that's what's different than a dog's uh, mindfulness or attention. But even more important or more differentiating it is the right understanding that comes with this kind of mindfulness, that bare awareness or bare attention is just the foundation. It's essential but it's just the foundation 
true mindfulness is actually samasati. And again, this is two Pali words. Samma uh, is the word that's pre- the prefix to all of the eight um, path factors, the, f- f- the Four Noble Truths, uh, suffering, the, end of suf- uh, the cause of suffering and the end of suffering, and the Fourth Noble Truth is the, the path that leads to the end of suffering, which is the Eightfold Noble Path these many layered lists of the Buddha, and each one of those path factors has samma as a prefix. And this word samma, we usually translate as right, so you could say right mindfulness, but it means not at right as in right and wrong, but more um, perfected or whole or integrated, onward leading, the kind of, in this case, mindfulness that leads to freedom or leads to liberation. So wise or true uh, definitions of this word samma. So samasati, which is a kind of mindfulness we're practicing here and the kind of mindfulness the Buddha taught, has the capacity or has the function of leading to insight. And this is its, its, uh, the huge difference between this samasati and uh, the bare attention or the simplicity of mindfulness and you could say the kind of dog mindfulness, dog consciousness. So it leads to insight. It leads to letting go and disidentification. And it necessarily leads to a lessening of suffering. These are the hallmarks of samasati. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is one of our um, preeminent scholars of this century, uh, he's uh, a, an American man who studied in Sri Lanka, now lives uh, in the, on the East Coast, but has done most of the translation of, our, of the text, the Pali Canon, and really beautiful translations that make them accessible. Anyway, he says this about right mindfulness. In the proper practice of right mindfulness, sati has to be integrated with sampajanya, clear comprehension. And it is only when these two work together that right mindfulness can fulfill its intended purpose. So it's this joining of mindfulness with wisdom, sampajanya, clear comprehension. Samasati must always be guided by right view, steered by right intention, grounded in the three ethical factors, and cultivated in conjunction with samma-vayama, right effort. Right effort necessarily presupposes the distinction of mental states into the unwholesome and the wholesome. And this last paragraph, he was going through the other path factors and just saying how samasati is, is held in the context of all of the other path factors of right intention and right view and right effort. This is what makes mindfulness, right mindfulness or samasati. So we could say that in this practice, in our practice, the purpose of mindfulness is to develop insight. This is why we cultivate mindfulness, not just to be mindful, but to develop insight. And the specific area of insight or a common area of insight that this kind of mindfulness can penetrate is insight into the three characteristics. And these are the characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, 
and not self or no solid entity at the center of this being. Uh, We'll probably give a whole talk on those, so I'm not going to go into it, but that kind of wisdom, that kind of seeing is really central to freeing the heart and mind, to really truly penetrating those characteristics. At the same time, mindfulness has the function or the tendency just through its functioning, without us actively wishing this were so, but if it's samasati, it has the function of developing wholesome qualities and decreasing unwholesome ones. And this is actually really good news, that it has this function that, you know, we can often think, you know, so what's sitting here and breathing and listening to the frogs got to do with the waking up? It's this very fact that as we cultivate mindfulness and we cultivate it often with tuning into hopefully relatively neutral things like sounds and the breath, walking meditation, this training of the mind allows this depth of attention that has this function. Develop insight or deepen insight, decrease unwholesome, increase wholesome. So this is a really important distinction between kind of the just generic mindfulness that is often talked about or taught in the secular setting and what the Buddha was talking about. Sayadu Tejaniya, who I think Carol referenced in her talk the other night, also one of my teachers, um, really strongly emphasizes this to the point of he has a whole book called Awareness Alone is Not Enough that it needs to be coupled with wisdom or right understanding. We need to understand the context within which or what, what this mindfulness is illuminating. We need to bring the what mindfulness is. So he says things like, the basic objective of meditation is to improve the quality of the mind. That this practice, even as we train with awareness and grounding the awareness in the body or sounds, things like that, we are training the mind and we're actually cultivating the mind, improving the mind. He says, the work of awareness is just to know. The work of wisdom is to differentiate between what is skillful and unskillful. So we use this training, this simple practice of mindfulness to actually develop and deepen wisdom just by the noticing, but the noticing in a consistent way. And that's the other thing we've been talking about, mindfulness and then continuity. The more often we notice things, the more will be revealed. If we're, you know, off in la-la land, that's all we're cultivating is the mind that's distracted, a mind that we brought into this retreat. But as we stay steady we can't but help to notice more aspects of our experience. And in that noticing, things also you know, get revealed that aren't just superficial on the surface. So we ourselves are, as Mary, uh, Mary Oliver says, scholars of our own experience. I often read this poem because it so beautifully speaks to this practice. And it's called, it was easy to find because it's called mindful, Mary Oliver. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight. 
just like the owl flying overhead, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. I'm just going to insert, that's a bit like the little poem or gata I read the other night, same old slippers, same old rice, same old glimpse of paradise. It's kind of pointing to the same thing. In the very ordinariness of our mind-body breathing in and breathing out, this whole world revealed. O good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. So it's just speaking to the wonder that's there when we pay attention, when we pay attention in that kind, gentle way, that curious attention that we keep talking about. So this is the the context of our mindfulness practice. Not just knowing, but knowing with this interest, with this wisdom that isn't a heavy-handed thing. Um, It's very light touch, as she says. Soft, soft world, Um, but so profound. The other aspect of mindfulness that I think is important to um, clarify is that, you know, I've even said it myself already, you know, be here now. The, the, the nowness of it is so important. But the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta, and I think Brian talked about this already, instructs us in what I call the three times. So, of course, there's now. When we wake up, we, you know, we, we're lost and we become present. So there's that moment of mindfulness I consider that really a moment of grace because as uh, another teacher, I teach with Richard Shankman, he'll often say, what's the practice for when you're lost? You know, you're really deluded out in la-la land. What's the practice then? And, you know, I'm not expecting you as a rhetorical question really, but he said, he said there's no practice because you're lost, you're deluded. But something brings us back into presence, Right. And again, we could go a whole riff on that. You know, basically what it is, the more moments of mindfulness, the more likely you'll have another moment of mindfulness arise more quickly rather than slowly. So it's just that training. But so we we come back into presence. Really important to be grateful for that rather than berating ourselves, beating ourselves up. But we take a moment to notice what is happening now, and even what was happening. The moment, you know, what were we lost in? What, were, what was the, the thought pattern? Remembering, planning, worrying, etc. So just a little checking in. And what was the flavor of that? Again, the shorthand greed, aversion, delusion. Was I holding on to something, pushing something away, or was I just totally spaced out? This is this little bit of reflectiveness 
of what was just happening. Not, you know, oh, I was thinking of this, and then I thought of that, and then I thought of that. And, you know, that can be amusing to a certain extent, but you do that a hundred times, and believe me, it stops being amusing. So I'm not talking about that, but just it's a snapshot. It's like, oh, right, I was really lost in that. Or this was kind of the contract, the heart was really contracted, or my thighs were really contracted, whatever it is. You just have this glimpse back. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha will say things like, the practitioner knows the conditions that led to this moment of experience. And then, depending on what you see in this moment, maybe you see that there's joy or calm or tranquility. So wholesome states you learn how to develop those. We want to continue that, nourish, nurture those conditions. If you notice that there's contraction or resentment or fear or whatever, you want to understand that and see, can we work with those conditions so that so that, that tendency, you know, again, there's a lot of uh, skill in this and not saying judging or anything is bad or wrong, but just how to respond appropriately to that so we don't get so overwhelmed perhaps next time or even in the moment we can uh, lessen that. So we make a choice. That's kind of the future moment. We make a choice about what, how we're going to respond. Of course, we're never in the future, right? But, you know, there's just this sense of, oh, I'm making a choice to impact my next mind moment. I'm choosing to let this go. I'm choosing to relax. I'm you know, having this clarity of what am I cultivating in this particular mind moment? And do I want to continue cultivating that or not? You know, and is this going in the direction I want to go? So this is what I call the three mind moments. It can happen very quickly. This is not to encourage you to a lot of thinking and sort of comparing and evaluating. As you get trained in this, it's very immediate. It's like, oh, right. You take that breath, you kind of recalibrate, and you just sort of set the intention for a wise response in the next moment. And this is not, you know, again, dividing things into right or wrong or that's good or this is bad. It's more like a compass. And, you know, if you ever use a compass, they're very tremulous, right? They kind of, they're never steady. They're just always responding to those forces. And as you move them, they respond. But they have this magnetic pull. They always are showing us true north. And from true north, we can orient these other aspects of the compass. So it's not rigid, you know, it's not saying, oh, you have to get rid of this and only have that. It's very responsive. But this is the heart of our practice, this coming into the moment, this bringing the wisdom in that you all have. And this is the wisdom that knows how to let go of suffering, decrease suffering in the moment, not some grand awakening, ending of suffering, final nibbana here and now, great, if it happens, let us know. But this is really just this moment by moment, choosing to, you know, not be so caught. And even as I say this, of course, if something is really up for you, and you, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, movement around that, yes, you, you, you're with that, you, you respond to that as with as much kindness, compassion, openness, curiosity, this is, you know, the, sort of in the refinement of practice when we have these choice points where we can really see, you know, what's an appropriate response here. And so we learn how to do that very process 
without adding more craving or aversion. So it's not, oh, I've got to get rid of this and only have that, or I really want back in that state that I had at the last retreat. It's, it's, it's much more in the, the present moment than that. And it's the samasati, it's the right kind of mindfulness that brings this kind of wisdom in. And it leads to what Buddhadasa, I think Carol was also talking about Buddhadasa, Ajahn Buddhadasa, Thai forest, uh, Ajahn teacher, um, very wise and, and uh, almost a little bit of a rebel. But he used to talk about satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. He never hardly just mentioned sati, it was always satipanya, because he really saw that wisdom is so essential. And the satipanya naturally lets go. You know, they t- someone came up with a saying that, that suffering is rope burn. You know, it's holding on to something that's going. If we hold on, it's gonna, we're going to suffer. If we let go, the rope just flies free. So we see how we cause a lot of our own suffering through the way we hold on, through the way we identify, and it naturally, you know, it's just like no one has to tell you to take your finger out of the flame or away from the hot stove. There's that natural letting go. When the mindfulness is really functioning, it sees this clearly. It reduces the hindrances and increases wholesome states of mind. So this is, you know, really powerful. This is why we do this practice why we listen to the frogs, why we pay attention to the breath and the body to train the mind to have this purity of noticing, this clarity of noticing. But we go through cycles in this. You know, as I said, it's not rigid, it's not a railway track, you know. Even though the Buddha said this is the direct way or the, 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 you know, the direct path, we meander, you know, we, we find our way with this, because obviously this is what we want for us. We want to be able to let go. We want more peace and freedom. We don't want to hold on or identify. Yet we sit down to meditate, and as I said at the beginning, what does the mind do? It runs all over the place. You know, did I send that email? Did I turn the stove off? How are the kids doing? What about my cat? You know, uh, why did she say that? What, what did, you know, why did that person look at me like? The mind just, it's amazing what it will drag in for us to ruminate on, right? From all corners of our lives, from here on the retreat to the long-distance past. And we can go through this, as I said, these, these waves of contraction to restlessness to contraction. The mind, as it gets stirred up, if you notice, if you start to pay attention, look and see what it does to the body. You know, I find myself the... My eyes tighten, my jaw tightens a bit. You can feel it affects your breath. So you notice that. But the very contraction of that can feed the restlessness unless there's the mindfulness coming in that just says, relax, relax. And we don't keep emphasizing relaxation because it's more comfortable. It is, but that's not the reason. It's because when we relax... Something lets go. Some tightness, some holding, some view, some belief. Perhaps not in any major way, and maybe it comes back in the next moment. But the more we train ourselves 
the more we offer this possibility of relaxation and then the letting go, the more that habit of mind gets trained. And, you know, this is really just a big reprogramming project. Um, the, the mindfulness is this possibility of reprogramming these minds and hearts. So mindfulness is a training to direct mental energy into the present moment and clear seeing. And so we need to notice you know, the impact of our thoughts, of our obsessions on the body. You relax the body, the mind can let go a bit. A lot of our practice is just working with energy. And again, it can seem, uh, you could say simple, but it has a powerful training effect for us, how we do that. My, my sister who lives in Australia, she's done a little bit of meditation. She actually started out with me in India in, you know, 1980 or so, but went on a different path than I did. Um, she's got two daughters, and one of them struggled with ADHD. You know, it's very common with, with, with a lot of kids these days. And, you know, that energy, that, that amped-up kind of energy is really problematic, but as she's gotten more familiar with it, more skillful about it, got some support about working with it, a little while ago my sister said, oh, Stella said, you know, oh, I feel that energy coming up, but now I can just open to it and allow it, and it doesn't have to run the show. And it was just such wisdom from a fairly young woman about how to open to that energy and that sense of openness, rather than, you know, adding to it with contraction, is really very important. And as we train in this way, you know, as simple as listening to the frogs and relaxing, you know, something shifts. We're more willing to be present for this moment. We're not so lost in past and future because this moment has an okayness about it. But we have a deep pattern, a habit of lost in past and future. Again, one of my uh, touchstones for um, understanding the mind is Calvin and Hobbes, because they both, they, there's a, anyway, <laughs> my mind, anyway. So Calvin is climbing a tree, Hobbes is a little below, you know, Calvin the young boy, Hobbes is imaginary tiger friend, and Calvin is saying, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment they climb further up the tree. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. And Hobbes, who is always the voice of wisdom, says, of course, you're supposed to be in school right now. And Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. Because that's often it. It's like if it's not good enough, off we go into whatever our escape valve is, you know, climbing a tree or the tree in our mind that we just uh, lose, lose ourselves in. Mindfulness is this training um, to be present and be happy or glad even that we're present. To even, you could say, rejoice in being present. To find, you know, this thing I was talking about at the beginning, this yearning we have, a lot of it is to find that. To be in the here and the now with ourselves as we are and be okay. For many of us, that's a radical shift in how we relate to who we, who we are. So mindfulness... Its other power is this choice point. When we wake up and recognize what's happening, we create that little gap 
And that little gap is so powerful because if the mindfulness has a clarity to it, the wisdom can come in there. Whether it's a very personal wisdom of how to respond to an old wound or an old memory, or just the wisdom of let not now, not now, let go, whatever that might be. We keep conditioning that new habit of wise response. As Maharaji, the great Indian saint, says, of what we understand, we are the masters. Of what we do not understand, we are the slaves. So it really is bringing the wisdom in so we have this sense of autonomy, not quite the right word, authenticity, you know, this this inner knowing. (coughs) And so we learn how to relate to our thoughts wisely. It's not about not thinking, because we will. Anyone stopped thinking for even, you know, 10 minutes, five minutes, you know, the mind is very well trained to think. Thinking is not the problem. We just need a different relationship to thoughts to see them for what they are, this blip of energy in the mind. I love this saying, thoughts have the power we choose to give them. When we don't recognize them, they run the show. They, they, they determine our reactivity and our wants and our dislikes and everything. When we see them, more light than the dandelion fluff, you know, more evanescent than the fog. It's just so true. So just as Mary Oliver says, we become the scholar of our own inner soft world. We track our own experience. And so we learn. Oh, if I dwell on this kind of thinking or this kind of mood or emotion, this is what happens. This is where I end up. If I learn how to be kind or to accept or to let go, this is the mind and heart that gets developed. So what am I learning? As I say this, I don't want to make it seem um, overly complicated You know, this happens more intuitively. It's not a lot of words or thinking, but it's really pointing out um, the the benefit or the value of this interest in what's happening on all of these levels, whether it's really gross or very subtle. It's the I, the interest in RAIN that I think Brian talked about, you know, RAIN, recognition, acceptance, interest, non-identification. The interest. If we can get interested, everything opens up. It often gets translated or used as investigation, and sometimes that seems heavy-handed. I prefer interest, or even another translation I've heard, intimacy. It just means getting close with our experience, meeting it. You know, not not digging in, in investigations like the archaeological dig. I need to get in there with my you know shovel and backhoe or whatever and figure things out. intimacy. It's just being with this in this gentle way. And then for the end, non-identification, we'll probably talk more about this, but basically not taking it personally. This is just what the mind does. Your mind is not that different than my mind, than every mind. I actually also heard this uh, other word, nature. It's just the nature of the mind to do this. Again, not to take it personally. 
So one of the things I really want to convey in this talk tonight is that vipassana, insight meditation, is not a passive practice. It's not just sitting back and noticing what's happening. It's not what I call the lump on the log practice. Oh, I'm so sleepy, or oh, I'm you know, so aversive, or oh, this is going... You know, yes, we need to know what's happening, but then what do we do with that? How are we relating to it? What are we learning from that? It's, it's, it's really uh, key to this practice deepening, is what is going on in this mind and heart. It starts with the mindfulness, of course, and then the acknowledgement, the acceptance, the naming. We've talked about these three terms, the relaxed, interested, kind awareness. These, all of these are so key. I'll come back to them in a moment. So our first response always is this curious mindfulness. Oh, what is this? What's happening here? What's the flavor of this in the mind and heart? And the wisdom can naturally often, we say, release or liberate what that experience is, especially if it's difficult. It's just, you know, as I said, the wisdom sees and lets go. But sometimes we need a stronger response. We talk about antidotes, that metta is a beautiful antidote to the contracted mind, to the aversive mind, to the fearful mind. That compassion can be a beautiful response to the suffering. You know, just to say, oh dear, this, this really hurts. This is really hard. And, and really a, a sense of, of um, warmth or tenderness around that. Sometimes we need to, you know, do a more active practice. Um, use the noting practice or go for a vigorous walk. Um, there's different kinds of responses. You know, if, we're, if the mind is really dull, to really get curious about what is dullness, what is sleepiness, what is this experience? You know, to look at the different flavors of dullness or boredom or sleepiness, to get curious about them. So, you know, and if, 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 if we're really restless, what would it take to sort of balance that, to use our breath, to ground more in a sense of the body? So, again, we'll talk more about these different aspects of practice, but just to know, wise response is an important part of this practice. You are the steerer of your ship in this. And the wisdom and the understanding that you bring to your practice is what will deepen and develop all of these beautiful qualities that we've been talking about. And so we start to really see that it's not what's happening that's important. It's how we're relating to it. And this is so key. We're going to keep emphasizing this again and again. There's again, Sayadaw Tejani would say, doesn't matter what the object is. Mindfulness doesn't care. As long as it's connected and knowing what's the flavor in the mind. Is there resistance? Is there interest? Is there calm? Is there acceptance? And again, you're not hammering this all the time, all the time. But if you find there's contraction, if you find there's resistance, if you find there's dullness or boredom or disconnect, this is when we use these tools to get us, bring a little more clarity. So this whole retreat is really one of reprogramming. 
you could almost say, I don't like using this word, but it kind of is a brainwashing, you know, where, but in a good way, you know, of taking away those programs that aren't helpful and replacing them with ones that we consciously choose for ourselves out of our own sense of well-wishing, our own sense of um, what's beneficial for us. So reprogramming, it really is like, you know, having an old computer. You've all had that, you buy the computer and it's all fancy and new and the latest thing on the block or whatever. And how long does it take before, you know, there's a newer one, obviously, so there's that. That's very quick. But that your computer kind of was doing its job okay and it gets slower and slower and clunkier and clunkier and everything takes ages to load and you press a button, it's like... It's amazing what we used to, right? It's like, this is taking seconds to do, you know? I'm so impatient for this process to happen. So, you know, I had that experience. I got the tune-up utilities, you know, that you see the ads and it says, you know, run this and your computer will be like new. And I'm like, great. And then it runs and it says, I found 673 problems with your computer and I solved 432 of them. And you're like, great, it's all fixed. And then, you know, it's like, a half a second faster than it was. But, but it feels better, right? You know, you do it, you're cleaning up. You're cleaning out all of these programs that you've accumulated. Your mind is just like that. You know, as a child, you're like, great hardware, but version 1.0 of the software. Well, I know what, you, you, you'd have to decide what version of software you're at up to now, but you're not in the early stages, right? You're somewhere along that development. And a lot of the programs are really useful. We needed them. And some, honestly, we don't need any longer. But we wake up in the morning, what happens? It's like, ka-chunk, ka-chunk, there they are. They all load up, whether we want them or not. And there's all of our reactivity and our conditioning and our, you know, thoughts and our ideas. And it's totally like a program, you know, we, we think we have such a sense of um, free will and determination, and I actually do believe we have, because that choice point I talked about is so important. But most of the time, we are just running those programs, and a lot of them are not so, you know, latest state-of-the-art, I should, you know, whatever we say. I, I read this recently from Jacob Needleman, who's a philosopher, our lives are what they are in large part because of the weakness and the passivity of our attention. We are taken, our attention is taken, swallowed by our streams of automatic thought. We constantly disappear into our emotional reactions. We are taken by our fears and desires, our pleasures and pains, by our daydreams and imaginary worries. And being taken we no longer exist as I, myself, here. We're lost. Excuse me. We do not live our lives. We are lived and may eventually die without ever having awakened to what we really are, without ever having lived. I really thought that was powerful. We're just, you know... We're programmed by all these cultural and societal conditionings, our family conditioning. We need to reboot. This retreat is a major reboot. The com computer utility cleanup, just delete some of those programs. They're slowing you down. They're weighing you down. 
And so meditation is like installing really good antivirus software. Not the kludgy kind, you know, that kind sort of slows you down, but the really good kind that protects you, helps everything run a little more smoothly, and really looks out for your own best interests. What, what is skillful and wholesome you want to cultivate, you want to let in, and what do you need to protect yourself from, defend yourself from, what can you let go of? So this is what our practice is about. It really, literally is a reprogramming, but with wisdom and compassion. This is where we differ from a computer. Wisdom and compassion. Coming back to this kind, interested, relaxed attention. I know James uh, has been using that phrase, and I really like it. And as I was talking to someone in an interview the other day, I realized it really is a very complete description of our practice. The kindness is the compassion, that's the heart center. The interest is the wisdom, that's the mind. And the attention is the mindfulness, that's sort of, you could say, the body or the sense doors. Um, So it's the, the wisdom, the compassion, and the mindfulness. It's the heart, the body, and the mind all coming together Carol would phrase it this way, the three jobs of a yogi. Develop mindfulness, do it continuously, and bring right understanding or wisdom to it. This really is our task. This really is what we're pointing to again and again on this retreat and in your practice. And as we say, simple but not easy. But there is a simplicity to it that we need to keep coming back to, that we're just cultivating the habit of mindfulness, that listening to the frogs and taking a mindful step and eating a a bite of soup and knowing that you're doing that has a profound effect on the quality of your mind and heart. As Ajahn Sumedho says, mindfulness is a normal, natural state we can learn to trust, not some remote state hard to realize. We can trust this capacity of being present. In it is wisdom, in it is compassion, in it is the path to freedom. So let's just sit and let the words settle into silence.
Thank you for your attention. Time now for walking. If you have energy to come back for the evening sit with the beautiful chanting of the Karaniya Metta Sutta. So go out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.